put all those together, the anaesthetic, the hangover, the stomach bug, the pint, all together, not one on its own, mm. and then add a plate of smoked salty bacon, I mean a plate full, and five dry cream crackers, and all of that, I hope, will do justice to the first. The word diabetes is synonymous with sugar in today's society. But diabetes insipidus, often termed water diabetes, must be forgotten. Between 2009 and 2016, four people died in hospitals in England as a result of essential treatment for diabetes insipidus not being given. A new article on bmj.com offers practical tips for non-specialists on how diabetes insipidus is diagnosed and how patients should be managed during times of illness and hospital admission. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and an Associate Editor of the BMJ. I'm joined by Miles Levy, Consultant in Endocrinology at Leicester Royal Infirmary. Hi Miles. Hello, thanks for having us. Pat McBride, Head of Patient and Family Services at the Pituitary Foundation. Hi Pat. Hello there, hi, thanks for asking me. John Ross, Professor of Endocrinology at Oxford University. Hi there, Tom. And Malcolm Prentice, Consultant in Endocrinology at Croydon University Hospital. Hello. Hello. Miles, uh, I remember when you pitched this topic to the BMJ, um, I remember I could really tell that you were passionate about this this topic in, in the pitch. So I wanted to start by asking you to tell us, you know, what made you want to write about this this subject for us? So firstly, thanks very much for the invitation, the opportunity to speak with my esteemed colleagues. Um, basically, the reason was that that we'd had a few cases of either death or near death, both nationally as well as locally, where I work, unfortunately. And going to conferences and talking to colleagues, we realised, and talking to patients, we realised that this was actually quite a widespread problem and such a simple condition to treat. In other words, these patients, all they need is desmopressin, and fluids and a recognition that diabetes insipidus is completely different from diabetes mellitus and those simple things were not getting recognised and this was, as I say, uh, resulting in death. Hmm. So all clinicians clearly need to be aware of this. Um, So let's go back to to basics for a moment and ask, you know, what is diabetes insipidus? And I thought it'd be really interesting to hear from somebody who, who has diabetes insipidus uh, and that's Pat. Um, can you talk us through your own experience of being diagnosed with, with diabetes insipidus um, and, and what happened there? I remember the day, a Sunday, it started 33 years ago. I was so dry and gulping drinks, but they weren't quenching my thirst. I thought it was really odd. It must have been something I ate. I was then weighing out every 20 to 40 minutes, 24 hours a day. And I thought this was due to me drinking so much. I couldn't sleep. I planned any trip out of the house around a toilet route. The thirst was agony. I quickly had a preference for icy cold sparkling drinks, but a running tap with my mouth under was usual too. My lips were almost peeling and cracked. I was so dehydrated. My GP checked my blood sugar, which was normal, and never mentioned DI. I didn't know about DI. I saw another GP who asked me, did I have a water drinking habit? 
I actually thought I was obsessed with fluids, but didn't know how to answer him. And of course, you would wee out gallons if you drank that much. I saw a gynaecologist privately, as my GP said, it must be your hormones. Female ones? And I couldn't wait six months to see him on the NHS. When I saw him, he got it, plus my pituitary condition, which caused this, took the correct bloods and within weeks I was having my first water sorry, water deprivation test. Thank you. Um, so they're a very powerful sort of story there and particularly highlighting how important it is for, for, for generalists, clinicians, GPs to, to, to know about this. Um, I think it'd be helpful to, to think about how these symptoms come about at this point. And perhaps, Miles, if I could turn to you again to, to just talk us through what diabetes insipidus is. Yeah, so, I mean, diabetes is the Greek word for a siphon. So it's water coming in and water coming out. So all that is is a clinical description of somebody who's ragingly thirsty, as you've heard, and weeing lots. And that can either be, as we all know, due to sugar diabetes, um, which is where there's hyperglycemia and there's an osmotic diuresis. So the, the glucose is pulling the urine out, making you dehydrated and you're replacing with fluid. Whereas diabetes insipidus, as the name suggests, you're weeing out insipid urine because it looks no different from water. And the reason for that is that you are unable to reabsorb water because either a lack or an insensitivity to vasopressin or ADH, which works on the kidney to reabsorb water. And I think the old-fashioned definition many, many years ago that ants, ants would crawl towards the water that had the glucose in because it was nice and sugary, but crawl away from the, the pale water because it was insipid. So it's a very old-fashioned definition. And unfortunately, we've now got caught up in semantics where in the very real life, in a busy NHS practice, the old sort of etymology, the definition, is actually causing a real problem with management because people are confusing the two conditions. Can I say that in the olden days, to go back a few centuries, uh, before the stick test for testing sugar in the urine, they had to put their finger in it and taste it. And mellitus is Latin for sweet, and insipidus is obviously insipid, and that was how they told the difference between people passing huge volumes of urine and those caused by diabetes mellitus and those caused by diabetes insipidus. Mm. So essentially it's... A lack of a vasopressin, which is produced by the posterior pituitary, not the anterior pituitary. Um, it's quite unusual for pituitary tumours to present with diabetes insipidus, but it suggests there's something wrong either with the back of the pituitary gland, usually due to pituitary inflammation or a strange pituitary tumour or after pituitary surgery. Or equally, it's not because of a lack of vasopressin, but because of insensitivity to the kidney, which is nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which, which doesn't respond as well to treatment uh, with DDA, with desmopressin, and is better managed by renal physicians. Mm. So, so they're, they're two clearly distinct conditions. Mm. And are there, are there particular risk factors that, that are useful for, for, for general clinicians to, to know about when, when somebody presents with this symptom that make, that make, make them an extra careful to think of this this uh, diagnosis so the problem is patients obviously present with polyuria and polydipsia they, they present thirsty and weeing a lot and by far the commonest cause of that symptom is it's not actually true polyuria which is defined by 
more than two and a half litres a day of urine output. The far the commonest cause of the symptom is bladder instability, urinary problems, and it's actually urinary frequency rather than true polyuria. Mm. Uh, but then if someone truly does have polyuria, in other words, more than two and a half litres of fluid a day, and you can just get the patient to go home, take a measuring jug and measure it themselves, um, perfectly doable. Uh, if it is more than two and a half or three litres a day, then you've got three differential diagnoses one of which is primary polydipsia, which means patients have an increased thirst mechanism. It's very much linked with psychiatric disease, but it's a behavioural thing. There's no abnormality in vasopressin um, metabolism or action. Or it can be diabetes insipidus, which can either be central or nephrogenic. So, so um, of course, the first thing to exclude mm. is diabetes mm. mellitus, as well as other electrolyte disorders such as hypokalemia, hypercalcemia. Yeah, so I'd add something which yeah. I noticed from patients' history, which has convinced me that they definitely are passing and uh, more urine and also drinking more than usual, is that if they give the story that during the night they actually drink volumes of water, not just waking up to take sips, and they get up and pass quantities of urine. And, of course, measuring it is the ultimate, me is the ultimate measurement to make. Absolutely. And in terms of basic clinical skills, um, patients that wake up at night to pass urine Yep. are quite likely to have diabetes insipidus, but if they're just waking up thirsty, then it, it might be primary polydipsia. I think as Pat described really nicely, it's not just the craving for uh, water, it's the craving for ice-cold drinks. So it seems that the osmoreceptors are sort of thermo-osmoreceptors, so you need to have a cold, uh, a bit like when you're desperate for a cold beer or a cold Diet Coke, having that all the time must be dreadful. Yeah, Pat, do, do you want to add anything about the, the, the experience of... <laughs> yes, um, so if a patient presents to their GP, um, they will get the blood, sugar, yeah. finger prick. Um, but I'd suggest that GPs might think about, as well as does she or he have mental health problems, look at the patient's tongue. That is done abroad, so I was abroad on holiday and that was the first thing the doctor checked for my DI status and it was brilliant. So check the patient's tongue. Are they smacking their lips and finding it hard to talk, like I am at the moment, sorry, because my <laughs> toast is breaking through? Is their tongue stuck on the roof of the mouth? Because towards quite well, after a few months of DI, actually that's what happens. Mm. Do they have a bottle of water with them and are they drinking from it? If they've got um, psychological issues with a water drinking habit, they will not bring the bottle of water into the surgery. Ask them what fluids do they prefer for their first, mostly icy cold, tick. Ask them are they eating properly. They won't likely be eating savoury foods because you can't bear them. But ice cubes, ice lollies, jelly, fruit, soup, have they devised their own fluid in an out chart? Or a partner might have done that. Are they wriggling on the seat opposite you needing the loo? All those things a GP mm. could ask about or the patient can prompt that. So it sounds like that's drawn, must be drawn from, as well as your own experience, that, that of people of contacting you. Yes. What, what sort of... Yeah. Um, We've had um, one endocrinologist um, tell a parent to stop their young child drinking and the child did have DI mm. and that they must not let her drink the amount that she wants and she was actually drinking 
the bath taps. Yeah. I have. Um, we have. A, I think a patient who, whose child was licking the condensation off the windows. They were so desperately thirsty, or yes. drinking out of taps from 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 the sink. So you can only imagine the the degree of um, desperation. And again, Malcolm will tell the story about the tragic case of of Kane Gorney, who was a young twenty two year old man who was so desperately thirsty that he rang nine 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 from a hospital ward, and the police arrived, and sadly he died. And that that made national news and has somewhat catapulted diabetes insipidus into the national consciousness. So I think, uh, just to take up that point, Miles, my, my only main advantage, I suppose, at my stage of my career is I've been a district general physician involved with the medical take since about 1974, so I've probably seen more inpatient accidents and things that have gone wrong and had to try and anticipate and, and uh, to uh, some reverse some of the medical accidents which are naturally going to occur. So I think when I heard that a nearby hospital um, and this young 22-year-old had gone in and uh, perfectly well and on full replacement with DDAVP and his other hormones. But sadly, the ward that he went into was not an endocrine ward. And of course, this is a point we have to realise. Most of these patients with diabetes insipidus will have a link with the medical profession when they go into hospital for something else, not because of their endocrinology, because they've been diagnosed and they've been put on the appropriate therapy. But it's the, the, dif- the difficulty of getting the recognition of the condition across to all the other specialties. And this is, I think, the danger which was very well, um, sadly, uh, highlighted by Kane's case. So he was having a, a routine orthopaedic procedure, wasn't he? He went in for a routine hip replacement and he was on full replacement with uh, steroids and DDAVP and uh, thyroid hormone for his hypopituitarism. And sadly, he everything was written up for him, um, but the, uh, the, the nurses did not give it to him. Um, and in fact, when he became ill after the operation, which was a great success, he went back to the ward and he started becoming confused. And his mother arrived at the ward and said, well, he, he, he actually gets like this when he doesn't have his therapy. And they said, no, 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 he's getting everything. Everything is fine. Um, and he had his blood sugar taken and he was causing more disruption. So in fact, um, they put him in a side ward and he rang the police and said, look, they've got to give me something to drink. The police arrived on the ward and Red Gain were um, reassured that everything was all right. Now, sadly, the orthopaedic ward and the nurses and um, the doctors involved and even the pharmacists did not recognize that he needed DDAVT, DDAVP as a life-sustaining therapy. And without it for 48 hours, sadly, um, he was sedated because they were worried that he was having a form of psychosis um, and he had uh, an arrest and died the following morning. So what was actually happening was he had such a high sodium that was causing terrible cerebral irritation, which which ends up in an intracranial catastrophe, essentially. And this is, of course, totally treatable. And the difficulty is, I think, getting across this. And I think in your introduction, you made a very good point, Tom, that this is called diabetes insipidus. But the problem is the word diabetes. We've been very successful in telling everybody about diabetes mellitus. And there are large educational programs for this very common condition, which is diabetes mellitus. But the less common condition, unfortunately, is very easily mistaken. People read the, the first word on the diagnosis and they, oh, insipid, that must be yeah. type 2 or that must be some other form of diabetes, but let's just check the blood sugar. And so my, my thoughts are, why don't we make this easier? Why won't we make a major change and change the name of 
diabetes insipidus to something else. So we, we could call it, um, if you want to keep insipidus, you could call it pituitary insipidus and renal insipidus. You could call it vasopressin deficiency. Or I think the, um, the World Health Organization have done a, a, an alternative um, uh, name which they've started to bring out, which is AVP uh, deficiency. So it's, um, it, that, 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 that's also a possibility. So is that, um, how far are we in that process? Is that likely to happen anytime soon? Well, it's been put to the various clinical committees of uh, learned societies, and I right. think it would need to, to be pushed through, I hope, by, um, by the patient voice, because often we find the, 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 the voice of the patient is sometimes more mm. powerful than anybody else. So um, I'd like to hear what, what Pat's view is um, from her patients, and yeah, I know please. that she's been involved in trying to, to ask them. Hmm. Certainly. Um, it's the worst terminology, diabetes, for what we have, although it's a, a correct medical term. Um, every patient on our Facebook, every patient that comes on our helpline with DI will have a story to tell about the word diabetes. And even for me um, and the foundation have got many, many resources to help these patients when they're taken into hospital or if they have an illness suddenly. Um, I actually had to go to A&E in December and the first thing the paramedics did was prick my finger. And I've been there 20 years at the foundation. It makes no difference. I had all of my information. My daughter had it and was reeling it off to them and showing them it made no difference whatsoever. So it we have to change this name for so many, many patients. It's just, you know, awful. It can and will cause a lot of serious problems. I think it's fair to say that there is a, there, are, there are differences in opinion because changing the name of a condition will take a very long time. And, and John Moss actually is very senior sort of globally in endocrinology, I think has canvassed the Australasian and the American opinion. And, and I think, John, we've had sort of differences of enthusiasm for that, haven't we? Particularly vasopressin deficiency, which, which gets abbreviated to VD, which is bad. John, do you want to, to add anything uh, about this? Yes, I, I think it is something which is importantly misnamed. And we've heard of the dire consequences of that and the misinterpretation of people who know less about it. I think it's going to be difficult, but I think it is an ultimate objective that we should retain, which is to change the name. I think we could start off by changing it in this country, but I think that uh, things as they are, that needs to be a change in other countries and with endocrinologists throughout the the world uh, and talking to Americans, talking to uh, to Australians, as Miles has said, is something which you know they're not particularly able to grasp. One of the things that I think has happened, uh, which uh, needs to happen more, is that we're very aware of the complications in this country because the Department of Health has a regular means whereby serious complications and misadventures can be recorded. But if you ask an Australian endocrinologist how many serious problems they've had with diabetes insipidus, they don't know the answer. So I think that the first thing to do in terms of the progression towards getting it accepted globally is to make sure that people in the United States and in Australia and other big cultures actually recognise when things go wrong, because I'm sure they do, but it's currently unrecognised. 
I think as, as John, what John was saying, because in the UK we're pretty joined up and, you know, we're, we're, it's like a sort of pretty close-knit family between the patients and all endocrinologists, is is we were, unfortunately, in a case at my, at my hospital uh, was a patient who had adipsic diabetes insipidus, so had no thirst sensation. And their sodium went from 145 on the Thursday to 191 on the Sunday night, which is not compatible with life. Mm. So unfortunately, this patient died. He had lot, lots of other problems, but it was a preventable death. So we, we wrote that up as a patient safety alert through the NHS. And then we were moved to do a survey amongst all consultants and registrars in the Society for Endocrinology just to see whether they'd noticed problems in their trust. And I think the top line uh, result is that 55% uh, of several, a couple of hundred respondents said that they had concerns about the management of patients with diabetes insipidus in their trust. And 47%, so nearly 50% of respondents said they had at least one patient coming to harm because of the delayed administration or lack of knowledge about desmopressin. And one of the problems is because desmopressin is given as a spray, desmo spray, people kind of think it's Beccanese nasal spray for hay fever rather than a life-sustaining therapy, and it's a, it's a real problem. This falls into the criteria of what is unique to our specialty, which is that we actually put patients onto life-sustaining therapies. We are replacing the glands that maintain them in normal life. And therefore the drugs, if you like to call them drugs, although they're in fact hormones, that we give them are life-sustaining therapy. And when I have new doctors starting in my trust, I, I insist on giving them a quarter of an hour to go through Kane's case and explain that when they prescribe life-sustaining therapy, which no other specialty does, um, they have to make sure that it, it is given. Otherwise, the patients will die. I just want to yeah look at that NHS safety alert because it did highlight several well, themes from the incidents um, and perhaps we, we could look to, to what other areas can be improved. So, so one was, I think we mentioned that a lack of awareness of the critical nature of desmopressin, which, which I think Malcolm just, just mentioned. Um, availability of des desmopressin in, in inpatient areas, is, is that an issue you're still seeing? Yes, I think, um, I think pharmacists um, are not infallible as all medical staff are not infallible. And I think one has to um, be quite sure that patients are receiving the correct therapy. I had one pharmacist who thought that a GLP-1 diabetic therapy was insulin. So it's easy for them to make a mistake, and I, I think everybody will. But if we can somehow label in our trust, we have a, a computer program uh, so that all of our um, prescriptions are computerized and we put an electronic flag on every prescription for a, any of the three life-sustaining therapies and it says that this is life-sustaining therapies it's got three stars and it in capital letters must be given or supplies obtained immediately or please call the doctor so that it goes on to the patient's record and remains there while they're in the hospital. I think another issue was uh, patients who are nil by mouth as well. Well, that that's another thing which, therefore, they need specialist input yeah. and they need to have the endocrinology teams yeah. which are available in every trust. So, so it's a very important point. So, again, John's done national work with hydrocortisone because, as, as, as we all know and all the listeners to this programme will know, that um, adrenaline sufficiency hydrocortisone is a life-sustaining therapy. Type 1 diabetes insulin is a life-sustaining therapy diabetes insipidus desmopressin is a life-sustaining therapy so so it needs to be badged as a critical 
medicine, which means that if someone is nil by mouth, there needs to be a process whereby it's being flagged to say, if this patient is nil by mouth, we need to give the drug parenterally. And the importance is the dose is completely different. So the dose of desmopressin orally is 1 to 200 micrograms. The dose intranasally is about 10 micrograms. And the dose intravenously or intramuscularly is 1 to 2 micrograms. So it's very important that specialists are involved early. And I think that links with some uh, new guidance which was published, I think, last year by the Society for Endocrinology. Yeah, so I kind of did work my life job, but with, with all the group involvement, including Steve Ball, who's a, who's a well-respected sodiumologist. Um, and essentially, they're pretty uh, straightforward, short guidelines uh, on how to manage an acutely unwell patient with diabetes insipidus and the bottom line is give fluids and desmopressin and fluid balance is very very important and unfortunately because of the sort of difficulty in continuity in the NHS it is basic fluid balance is difficult enough even with a patient with normal water regulation so a patient with diabetes insipidus your trousers around your ankles a bit in terms of you know the uh, the patient will get dehydrated very very quickly but I wonder whether something would be also useful is is quite difficult to actually diagnose diabetes insipidus initially if you're a GP and you've got a patient coming in with thirst and polyuria the key question is which patients to worry about and to refer up early because they do need treatment within a few weeks but there will be a whole load of patients coming that do not have diabetes insipidus yeah yeah and that's something that I think is um is discussed in the article but but could you just summarize the the thought process that a GP should try to follow when when they're seeing a patient like this yeah so History, history, history. So as Pat was saying, it's all in the history to start with. So if a patient is raging thirst and is getting up at night to pass urine and the urine is colourless, that's going to immediately alert you to the diagnosis, assuming you've ruled out diabetes mellitus, which is far more common. So once you've got a normal blood sugar, once you've got a normal calcium and normal electrolytes, and if the urine volume is greater than 2.5 to 3 litres a day, the important thing is to look at the osmolality or the concentration of the urine compared to the concentration in the blood. Because with diabetes insipidus, because you're losing pure water, the osmolality or the concentration of the urine will be low, and the concentration of the blood might be high, and the concentration of sodium might be high. In reality, the results are normally normal because patients are very good at replacing themselves with fluid. So I think once you're at that stage where you've got a patient with uh, with severe symptoms and a urine volume of greater than three litres a day, get them to see an endocrinologist within the next week or so because they need specialist investigation. And um, and that, well, one of those investigations is the, the water deprivation test, which uh, Pat has written about in uh, to go alongside the article on, on bmj.com. Pat, could you Tell us what, what that involves. How was that experience? Um, I've had three of these, unfortunately. Um, I had uh, two, one in local um, in a local hospital, um, which they didn't know how to perform the test, and they said it was fine. Um, and then I had one in uh, a main, a tertiary endocrinology centre. And unfortunately, halfway through the test, I pinched some sugar, Oh, sorry, sugar. Sorry. Ice cubes. <laughs> Ice cubes out of a bucket in the kitchen on the ward, and I just shoved them all into my mouth 
and because I was so dry and so the endocrinologist quite rightly um, sent me home and said come back Monday and we'll start again. Um, so they're barbaric. Um, they shouldn't put you on a ward where everybody else has got a nice cold bottle of water looking at your drinks they can freely drink. Um, the thirst is dreadful. Um, the water depri deprivation test obviously makes the thirst so, so much worse if that's possible. Um, and you're escorted to the toilet and the nurse will stand outside the door in case you drink the toilet bowl contents because you would. There's no doubt, there's no question. Um, and I was hoping she would just go out because I would have drank it. I would have scooped it out. Um, and they stand with you when you wash your hands. And again, I was hoping she'd go out so I could just put my head under the tap, but no. So by the time it's finished, and it can differ between individual patients, you're so dehydrated that you actually are very, very, very unwell. Mm. And um, once you are allowed to drink, um, I just remember uh, the, the ward staff were, were brilliant and they were bringing teas, coffees, anything all lined up. Um, they were really great water. And then I just drank my way through all of it and then they injected me. And for about, well, however long I've been struggling for months, I got my life back within half an hour. So the injection was desmopressin. Yeah. So that's that's the classic yes. response to. Yeah. So the water deprivation test, which I think is yeah. going to be slightly old-fashioned in the next few years because of better ways of testing for diabetes yeah. insipidus. But um, a lot of senior endocrinologists, when they've got patients with that severe symptoms, if the serum osmolality is high and the urine osmolality is less than three hundred, you'll just give the patient some treatment rather than do an, a dynamic test mm. because actually there's there's more than enough information there. The water deprivation test kind of has its place in equivocal cases where you're not sure if it's primary polydipsia or not and yeah. you probably should we shouldn't be doing those tests on patients that have obvious disease yeah. mm. actually if you've done lots of these again as miles says you don't need to do a whole eight hour water deprivation test you should be weighing patients and if they lose more than five percent of their body weight you stop the test uh, you should be measuring the blood and the urine for their osmolality during the test because if you're not concentrating at all and they're losing weight the diagnosis is then obvious and so it's only rarely in somebody particularly with severe diabetes insipidus that you need to go through the whole uh, water deprivation test you should be able to by weighing them regularly by measuring the things regularly through the test obviate the necessity for a whole eight hour water deprivation test and certainly when we were doing them at Bart's we used to take the taps off off the basins so that people couldn't get the water uh, that was a bit extreme there was a rather extreme professor of endocrinology in charge in those days uh, but basically I think that um, it's something which is you don't often have to go through a whole hog and do a whole water deprivation Deprivation test because yeah. as we've heard from everybody, it's a horrid thing Barbaric, to do. Yes. Uh, Malcolm, the, the great thing I try and do is ask the patient not to drink if they can before they come up for a test in the morning exactly. and do the paired osmolarities. And in the majority of cases, certainly with severe DI, that will make the diagnosis. Yes. And I was about to say, Malcolm, that's a clever thing to do from primary care. There's no reason why you can't yes. say to the patient from GP land, just 
as much as you can manage, get yourself really thirsty and dehydrated, and then give us a sample of urine and blood, because if the urine is still very dilute and the blood's concentrated, you've made the diagnosis from primary care without the need for this test. Thank you. Very, very good tip, that, yes. Um, I'm interested that you said you, you got your life back. Mm. Can you just tell us more about that feeling at the time? Yeah. Um, I drove, my husband drove me from Liverpool, the main hospital, um, it was working and I didn't, I wasn't looking for toilets and the bottle of water didn't need to be drunk. And we got home and we had a, uh, we had some dinner and I could eat it all and then I could sleep. Um, that was just amazing. That it, the, the weeing is so, so inconvenient um, and you really get angry and frustrated, but the thirst it's I I would swap this for qu quite a lot of things yes. um, and it's very very hard to describe the thirst we've tried in the foundation um, so I've I was thinking of things last night so if these things just so that you can get a tiny idea um, if you've had a hangover if you've had um, a stomach bug and dehydrated. Yep. Um, if you've had an anaesthetic and come round and the dryness, mm. if you've got that pint on the bar and your lips are right, put all those together, the anaesthetic, the hangover, the stomach bug, the pint, all together, not one on its own, mm. and then add a plate of smoked salty bacon, I mean a plate full, and five dry cream crackers, and all of that, I hope will do justice to the thirst. I c that's right. as best as I can describe it. Goodness. Horrible. I, I suppose from a point of view for, for the, the specialist here, this, this must be, you know, from a career point of view, we're, we're we're in this profession to, to help people. There must be a lot of satisfaction to, to, to helping yeah. people with this condition. It's a massively satisfying condition to treat. The patients are so grateful when you get the diagnosis right, just as if you give someone hydrocortisone if they've got Addison's disease. It's, it's the Lazarus drug they refer to it as. Um, one thing to say is the reason why one shouldn't just give it out like Smarties without a diagnosis is it is dangerous to have desmopressin if you have primary polydipsia because what you're doing there is you are reabsorbing water in a patient who is drinking excessively and you will have dilutional hyponatremia which potentially could cause seizures and in the worst case scenario the opposite of diabetes insipidus which is death through hyponatremia. So in that situation where someone's hyponatremic which can have many many causes if someone's got diabetes insipidus the first thought is the patient's had too much fluid and too much desmopressin so the thing to do is to stop the desmopressin let the patient wee it out and keep a close eye on fluid balance. But, you know, you have to see what happens to the sodium four hours later, so it requires very close monitoring and, and a good opinion as to what's mm. actually happening with the water regulation system. So diabetes insipidus is, thankfully, a, a rare disease, a rare condition, and, and I think as a GP, um, I think we were discussing this with the article, I may, I may expect one or less than one diagnosis in my career, whereas uh, it's not, not terribly uncommon to have somebody coming in concerned that they're drinking too much or pe peeing a lot, um, I'm interested in how I can 
make my assessment, which we, we've already been through, but but to confidently tell somebody that they they can drink less because I know this is this this is not diabetes insipidus. So again, history, history, yeah. history. Uh, if someone has psychiatric disease, then although it's not a given, uh, then they are more. It's more associated for whatever reason, and I'm no psychiatrist, but Di- it's it's, it's associated with um, primary polydipsia. So particularly major psychiatric illness can be associated with primary polydipsia. So that's a clue. As I've said, if patients are not waking up to pass urine, it makes it less likely. Importantly, yes, by all means, tell the patient, if it sounds reasonable, to reduce their fluid intake, because if it's primary polydipsia, it will respond very, very well to reduce fluid intake. If they can't do it because they're ragingly thirsty, just refer the patient for further investigation. Okay. So the first impulse in somebody with diabetes insipidus will, will, will make that particularly unpleasant. Yeah. The other thing to say is patients on lithium are high risk for having nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which we haven't spoken that much about, because endocrinologists don't know that much about nephrogenic DI because it's very yeah. difficult to manage. But lithium is quite a... We've got a lot of patients in Leicestershire, for example, who are on a lithium registry, and we've seen a few cases that have gone badly wrong with patients are coming for routine procedures because they've got nephrogenic DI. So lithium is an important drug for okay. nephrogenic DI. Um, right, as well just, as a risk factor for, for primary absolute, polydipsia. So, absolutely, so complex. Yeah, so it's complex. And just to complicate it more, some of the older antidepressants also cause thirst. So they mm. they had a, a, if you like, a muscarinic effect, which used to have a cholinergic effect, which would um, which would dry up the mouth. Right. The other thing to say from the history is we have some families with very autosomal dominant diabetes insipidus, either nephrogenic or cranial. So if they're a strong family kindreds, then think about the genetics. They're rare, but they do exist. So say take a good family history. If someone's had symptoms for many, many years, it's likely to be either primary polydipsia or nephrogenic DI, whereas with cranial diabetes insipidus, because of pituitary pathology, typically within weeks or months, the symptoms come on. So if patients have suddenly noticed the symptoms, take it more seriously. And of course, head injury, which is a relatively common presentation, can also result in diabetes insipidus by itself. Yes. And we've seen several cases, everybody, I mean, I'm sure all of us here would have seen those. And then to some previous pituitary surgery is a Indeed. very clear yeah, risk And in factor. fact, if someone's had known pituitary pathology or has had pituitary surgery and has those symptoms, you don't need to be too thoughtful about it because it's very, very likely yeah. they've got diabetes insipidus due to ADHD or vasopressin deficiency. Yeah. John? Can I just ask, putting myself in the position of a GP, yes. so the first important bit of the history is the nighttime activity. Are they really thirsty? Are they passing large volumes of urine at night? Because a lot of people who are thirsty may get up once or twice in the night, but not very often. And that's the first thing. And then the second thing would be if they are getting up at night, then I think you need to measure the volume total output, which should be more than three litres a day. And if that's the case, then I think they need to be referred in. The majority of people who have query diabetes insipidus have other causes. And as a GP, you can get them quite safely, because it's usually mild, Mm. to overnight stop drinking and measure the osmolality in the plasma and the urine. And if the urine osmolalities double that in the plasma, you've excluded Mm. diabetes insipidus. Yeah, very useful tip. Thank you. Yeah, so a helpful number is 750. So if, if the urine osmolality is greater than 750, it's highly unlikely you've got a problem concentrating your urine. Whereas if the urine osmolality is, for example, less than 300, 
with all the symptoms, then, then you've really got to take it seriously. Mm. What, what about somebody who has diabetes insipidus and, and is unwell with a vomiting illness or something? Are, are there sick day rules, Malcolm, which they should adhere well, to? Well, in fact, uh, that, that is a very important point, and we need to have sick day rules for every condition. And I think that's probably where we haven't really come together to make these rules yet. But I know that Miles has been talking about this because we have them for other conditions such as Addison's disease. And it's very important we do have those sick day rules. So, so that's something which I think Miles has already been thinking about. Pat, have you, have you seen anybody's uh, sick, sick day rules from anybody else that's been providing them? No, no, not uh, diabetes insipidus. Um, there are um, the NHS guidelines, the red alert. Uh, it is an alert, isn't it? But that doesn't actually help with hyponatremia. So how do you manage your symptoms when, if you were to have a, a flu or a, a um, diarrhoea? If I need to take more hydrocortisone, it seems to unmask the DI symptoms more, so I'll need a little extra um, desmopressin. But at 99% of times, I break through before I take my next dose of desmo, and my sodiums are always around 141, always. I've never, ever had a sodium problem in 33 years. I break through. What do you break through, you mean? Don't, I, I... I wait until the symptoms start again before I take the next okay, dose. Okay. Yeah, so Paz made a couple of interesting points there. The one thing about the hydrocortisone unmasking diabetes insipidus, that's a sort of bit of a geeky endocrinology thing, but um, but you need steroids to pee out free water. So if you're steroid deficient, you, you don't get diabetes insipidus. It's only when you take steroids that you can actually unmask diabetes insipidus. But, but yeah, the sick day rules, if someone is got known diabetes insipidus with the best will in the world if they're vomiting a bit like if someone's got type 1 diabetes and they're vomiting frankly they might need admitting to hospital for 24 hours just for a drip so if someone's the the, the real sick day rule is if you can't keep fluids down and you're not happy with your symptoms and desmopressin go to hospital and maybe for somebody who's taking a something like a nasal spray they get a completely blocked up nose and or they get uh, they get perhaps some sinusitis there may be uh, an even less of a disease reason but they may still go out of control mm. uh, miles uh, as we begin to get to the end of the, the podcast I, I think it'd be really useful to just hear your your really key messages from from what we've been discussing about diabetes insipidus key messages are diabetes insipidus is not sugar diabetes mellitus number one uh, number two, cranial diabetes insipidus is usually due to pituitary disease and responds beautifully to desmopressin. Uh, number three, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus does not respond to desmopressin and is probably better managed by a renal physician. And number four, if a patient is known to have diabetes insipidus and is unwell, get them to hospital and make sure they get fluids and desmopressin by whatever means. And I'm going to let the other members here add in five, six and seven if they wish. Pat. If anyone has DI or if your patient has DI, please um, ask them to come to us at the Pituitary Foundation. Um, we have a website, we have free resources for DI patients and um, we have helplines and we will be there to support them. Thank you. Welcome. 
Well, I'm going to say that it's time to get rid of the word diabetes. I think the time has come and we must change the name. So uh, that's where I'm going to be planting my flag. And John? I think the important thing to think about is the diagnosis in general practice. Uh, and I think that, as I said just now, the important part of the history is what happens at night. And if that's not so busy, then it's unlikely they've got serious diabetes insipidus. But if it is busy and you get them to measure their urine output and it's more than three litres, uh, those people need to be referred into a specialist endocrine opinion. And the majority, as you say, don't have diabetes insipidus and it can be excluded quite quickly and quite easily in general practice by measuring the osmolalities after an overnight dehydration period. You've been listening to Miles Levy, John Boss, Malcolm Prentice and Pat McBride talk about diabetes insipidus. Their practice pointer is available now on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more free CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, so don't miss out on those. I'm Tom Nolan. Bye for now.